You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, if you guys would go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 45 through 52 this evening. Um, And we're continuing, obviously, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And tonight we come to the account of Jesus walking on the water. And in this passage, in this passage, we're going to see Jesus perform one of his greatest miracles. Our our text before us records the historical and factual account of the Lord Jesus truly and really walking on water. It's not a metaphor. He actually did this. This is a passage that is astounding for us if we read it and really considered what happened that day rather than just, oh yeah, Jesus walked on water, but like to actually think about how amazing that this actually is, it's astounding. And it's mainly uh, astounding for us because this text screams to all who will read it attentively that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That in Jesus, God has come to earth. That God, the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, has taken a human body to himself in order that he might come and die to redeem sinners. It's an amazing truth. But in this account, to summarize it before we even read it, we're going to see that Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat to sail to another town without him. And as they obey him, there comes a storm that keeps them from making any progress, similar to what we saw in chapter 4 whenever Jesus calmed the storm in that chapter. But then Jesus, seeing them in their great distress, walks to them on the water. He then gets into the boat and the storm ceases. And that's basically the story in a nutshell if we were just going to sum up the raw facts of the story. Now, most of the time, when people read this text with those facts before them, they they think this way. They say, well, the disciples were in a storm. I have my own storms too, metaphorically speaking. I have my trials in life. And then Jesus, seeing his disciples in in this storm and in trouble, he comes to them and helps them. So the takeaway then is that Jesus comes to us in our storms of life and he will help us too. That's how most people, I would argue, are going to read this passage and what they're going to take away from it. But I think that such a reading or such an understanding is superficial. And it fails to see Mark's big point in recording this miracle for us. In fact, I would be so bold as to say that those who understand this story to mean that Jesus will help you in your storms of life, such a person who thinks that this is what that text is teaching is actually trivializing this text. Not on purpose, for sure. I don't think there's any uh, malicious intention. But nevertheless, I think that such an understanding trivializes this text. This account that we're about to read is not about how Jesus is going to come in the midst of your trials and storms of life and help you. It's not about that. Now, to be fair, there are various parts of Scripture that teach us concepts very similar to that. God indeed will help his people to get through uh, trials in life in a way that honors him. Right? There's no doubt about that. That's absolutely a truth in Scripture. But that's not the point of this passage. Right? There's a phrase that we use in preaching. uh, Right doctrine, wrong verse. Right? That happens sometimes. Uh, But again, that's not the point of this passage. I I could preach a sermon to you this evening that says they were in a storm, you have storms, or Jesus helped them, so Jesus is going to help you too. But if I did that, first, I would be dishonoring God because I would be doing violence to the text, but second, I would be doing you a disservice because this text is really meant to reveal Christ in all of his glory 
as God incarnate, as God come in the flesh. And just real quick about interpreting this passage. I think something good to remember as we get further and further into the gospel of Mark is to remember why Mark wrote this book. And we get his mission statement in chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right off the bat, Mark says that this book is meant to tell us about the good news concerning Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? God in the flesh. Mark wrote this book in order to introduce us to Jesus, the chosen Savior and Redeemer of God's people, who is also God himself. We've got to keep that in mind as we read each passage, or I think we're going to miss a lot of what God has for us in this book. Right? So just putting that out there, I hope I haven't offended you and uh, maybe shattering how you formerly understood this text, but I think there's something better for you to see here. Um, now, I've got a bit of an outline for you this evening, uh, more so than last week anyway. <laughs> uh, so here's where we're going this evening. First, uh, we're going to walk through the text verse by verse. Shocker of shockers, right? We do that every week. We're going to walk through the text verse by verse. And then second, I want to summarize all that we see in the text that points us to the fact that Jesus is God. Third, we're going to then briefly consider three reasons why it is necessary that Jesus, our Redeemer, be truly God and not merely a man. Right? Why we need to understand and believe that Jesus is God. Why it was necessary that our Redeemer be truly God. And then last, I hope to show you how this miracle points us to not only who Jesus is as God, but also what he came to do. All right, so that's where we're going this evening. Now, if you would, if you're able, as a sign of respect to our God, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired and errant and infallible word. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of God. I pray you'll receive it as such. Let's pray. Holy and triune God, we humble ourselves now in your presence. We lay ourselves down before your holy word, and we ask now that you would teach us. We ask for enlightenment and illumination from you. We ask that you would plant your word deep in our hearts so that we might be transformed as we understand more of what you have for us here. God of glory, please allow us to get a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, God, glorify yourself this evening in the preaching and hearing of your holy word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So some context uh, for this passage, right? Our, our text this evening picks up where we left off last week. Jesus has just finished the miracle of feeding the multitude with five loaves and two fish. And I won't preach the sermon to you again. Uh, but for those who were really paying attention to that miracle, Jesus has just demonstrated with that miracle that he is the Messiah and God come in the flesh. 
And I think that part of that truth, this will all be relevant in a moment, I think that part of that truth got through to the crowds that day. Uh, at least the idea that Jesus could indeed be the Messiah. And I say that because in the parallel account in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we read this. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Right. So the people in the crowd, seeing the miracle of the bread and fish, seek to make Jesus king by force. And they make reference to Jesus being the prophet that Moses had promised would come. If you know Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said there'll be another prophet like me come, and you have to listen to him, and whoever will not listen to him, God will require it from them. Right? A man who would come and lead the Israelites. It's a messianic promise. Right? But their expectation of Messiah was flawed, as most of you know. The common Jewish understanding of Messiah in that day was that the Messiah would come and liberate the people of Israel from the forces of Rome and or whoever else would dare oppress them, and that he would liberate them by military force and then immediately usher in the visible kingdom of God. So they see that Jesus can create bread and then want to make him king. They want to make him a political king, a king who will slaughter the Romans and bring earthly peace to Israel. That's what they want from him. They had wrong expectations of what Messiah would do. You see, they, they missed the reality that the Messiah was first going to make atonement for sin by dying for the sins of the people. That he would first bring the people back to God spiritually and set up a spiritual kingdom before finally establishing a visible one. Again, they misunderstood Jesus. They didn't quite get it. And in their fervor to see their earthly temporal desires fulfilled, they sought to force Jesus to become king without seeing him for who he really is as God. And I think that Jesus' disciples, being men of their time, raised with false expectations about the Messiah, fell prey to some of the fervor of this crowd. So Jesus decided to keep them from it, and that's why we read in verse 45, immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. The text says he made them. Right? He constrained them to get into the boat. This is a word of force. This implies for us that the disciples did not want to get into the boat. Right? Whenever he first told them, he made them do it. So I think we can deduce then, keeping in mind what John says in John 6, that they had begun to agree with the crowd on some level. They too were missing the point of who Jesus is. They too, as we read in verse 52, did not understand the significance of the miracle with the loaves. And they wanted to force Jesus to become an earthly king. Again, they don't really understand Jesus yet, nor do they understand his mission fully. They're not hostile to him. They have a, a measure of faith. Jesus constantly says they have little faith, right? But they don't really understand, and I don't personally believe that they fully understood who Jesus was until after his resurrection. So Jesus, in an act of mercy and preservation of his disciples, forces them to get into a boat without him, right? I'll catch up with you later, right? Go on ahead. He knows they don't get it yet, so to keep them from the foolishness of the crowd, he constrains them to get into the boat. Verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So the disciples are in the boat, headed to Bethsaida. The crowds are all gone, and now the Lord Jesus goes to be alone with his Father in prayer. 
Now, that's not a strange thing, right? Jesus, obviously, as the perfect man, was a man of devout prayer. But it is interesting to note here that the Bible only tells us of three times that Jesus ever went alone to pray. I'm not saying he never did it more often than that, but the Bible only records three times, and this is one of them. The other times are the night before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, or rather 12 apostles, and the third time is the night before he was crucified. And each time that Jesus goes away to be alone in prayer, it's a critical moment in his ministry. It's like a watershed moment in his life. I imagine that, he, that after being tempted to take a kingdom without a cross, the Lord Jesus needed to be strengthened and resolved in his human nature. Maybe you've never thought about that. Whenever they sought to make him king, they sought to make him king over Israel, to make him ruler over the people without a cross. That would have been a great temptation. Right? In his human nature, he would not want to die. It's possible that he needed reminded by his father that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. That his resolve and focus was pleasing to his father. That in marching toward the cross all of his life, God was delighting in him. Not only that, but soon after this night, Jesus would be enduring much more opposition from the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel than he ever has up to this point. He needed to be strengthened by God in his human nature in order to press forward. Still more than that, he may have been praying for his disciples. He knows that they still don't recognize him for who he is. So maybe he prayed that God would help them to see him rightly. right? That they might see him and what it means that he's the Christ. What it means that he is the son of God. Now whatever he prayed about, Jesus prayed all night. But I want you to see here briefly, just I want to mention this in passing. We see here the true humanity of the Lord Jesus, do we not? We see his humanity. That while never ceasing to be God, he did indeed take a human nature to himself. Human in every single way that we are except sin. Right? He was without sin, perfect. And that's why he prayed. In his human nature, he prayed. He needed to pray like any other human being. He needed communion with God. He needed wisdom from God. He needed guidance from God. He needed reassurance from God. He needed strength from God, humanly speaking. So he prayed. Right? He, went and, he went away and he prayed for himself, and no doubt in my mind he prayed for his disciples as well. He's truly human. Don't forget that. We can get a lopsided view of Jesus as we confess truly God. He became truly man. Two natures in one person. He's truly human. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway, the disciples were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Stop there. So the evening comes, right, or maybe more accurately translated, night comes. It's dark. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee while Jesus is still on the land praying. And the text tells us they're having a really rough go. The winds are against them, blowing right in their face which makes their sail useless to them, right? They're fighting the wind. So they're forced to try and go ahead using only the oars, right? More literally, this verse is translated, they are straining at the oars or tormented at the oars, right? They're worn out. They are unable to go any further and basically at the mercy of the winds. And the winds have blown them off course. They're about three to four miles away from the land at this point, caught in a pretty bad storm. Uh, and they're essentially stranded in the middle of the lake, You'll notice, by the way, this kind of made me laugh. Looking at chapter 4 and, and chapter 6, 
Every time Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat, we're going somewhere, it just never goes well for the disciples, like ever. Like you think they probably got a little bit gun shy when he said get in the boat, you know, after this event. All right, all right Lord, we'll do it, but it's two times in a row now. <laughs> uh, it kind of made me laugh. Um, but what should have been a very short trip, maybe a, maybe a few hours, maybe three or four hours, has taken them all night, and they're stuck in this storm. Matthew 14 and Matthew's parallel account tells us that the waves are beating against the boat. In John 6, we're told that the sea had become rough because of the strong winds. This is a bad spot that the disciples find themselves in. But notice here in verse 48 that Jesus sees them. Right? He can see how hard of a time that they're having. He can see them straining at the oars. He can see the danger that they're in. Now, how does he see them? How does he see them? It's nighttime. They're in the middle of, this, of a storm, miles away from him. He's on a mountain, and there are no lights on this lake. Some people dispute this, but I think that this is probably a miraculous thing in the text, that Jesus can see them when they're that far away in the middle of the night, and there is a storm that has descended upon the lake. I don't think he sees them with his human eyes. I think he sees them according to the divine nature. So here's point one that Jesus is truly God. He sees. This is the omnipotent, or rather omniscient eye of God the Son on his disciples. He sees everything. He sees their distress. And as a brief note in passing, the eye of God is indeed always on his people. So Christian, you should take comfort in that, that the Lord sees his people in their distress. Right? The unbeliever should be terrified at the thought that the eye of God the Son is constantly on them. But you, Christian, should take great comfort in that. He sees and not only does he see, but he constantly acts on behalf of his people for their good. Right? And that's what we see in the following words. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So it's the fourth watch of the night, right? and that's a Roman way to reckon time. Right? It's, it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so Jesus, in the dead of night or wee hours of the morning, in complete darkness, comes directly to his disciples. Again, that's amazing. <laughs> he comes directly to his disciples who are battered at sea and completely worn out from rowing. And I say completely worn out because it's good to note here that Jesus probably sent his disciples away between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. And now it's the third watch of the night. So they've been at sea, straining at the oars, fighting against the wind, for at least six hours, maybe even 10 or 11 hours, right? And I've only rowed a boat a couple of times, and that would be a nightmare, between six and 11 hours of rowing against the wind. They're in distress, but Jesus finally comes to them, and he comes walking on the sea. He is literally walking on the water, and this is amazing, Right? Now, there are some liberal Christians who are no Christians at all. Uh, they try to explain away this miracle. Right? If you ever get to read a, a liberal commentary, it's kind of funny. They'll, they'll, they'll say that Jesus was actually walking on a sandbar. Right? As if the disciples didn't know the entire lake like the back of their hand and wouldn't have known where every sandbar was on the lake. They've only fished there their entire lives. Uh, but they say Jesus was actually just walking on a sandbar or that it was an optical illusion. Right? That Jesus was actually still on the shore, but the disciples only thought that they saw him on the water. It's equally ridiculous. Sometimes the liberal explanations of texts are actually more miraculous than the miracles themselves. But that's not what the text says. That's not what the text tells us. 
Mark literally says in the original language, he was walking on top of the waves. He was walking on top of the sea. This is a miracle that Mark's recording for us, and I I wanted to labor that point for a minute just to put this to you. If you truly believe that the Bible is the sufficient and inerrant word of God, you will receive Mark's testimony as truth. You will receive everything that the Bible says as unadulterated truth. Jesus truly, really, historically, factually walked upon the water here. In this passage, we have recorded for us that Jesus Christ suspended the laws of nature. He is doing that which is physically impossible to do so long as natural laws remain in place. Now, who can suspend the laws of nature but the one who wrote the laws? This is God. Right? He's walking on top of the water. Again, I, want you to see, I know you know that already, but I hope you'll see this with fresh eyes. This is astounding. Imagine if you saw this for yourself. There's never been anything like this ever in human history. She gets it. right? She's astounded. Not up to this point in human history. No human being has ever walked on top of the waters. And yet here is Jesus doing this very impossible thing. And this, brothers and sisters, as I just said, is a clear sign of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But to see that, and to see that this isn't just some kind of a miracle that anyone can do, or rather any prophet could do, you have to know some Old Testament stuff. All right, we're going to do this a couple times. We're going to have to look back in the Old Testament a bit. Namely, you need to know what some Old Testament passages say about God and the waters. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 10, we read this. The Lord, Yahweh, God's proper name, Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. The flood here in Psalm 22 means waters, the seas, the oceans. God is king over them. He sits enthroned over them. They're his waters. He controls them and tells them where to go. Psalm 22 tells us that. Psalm 107, verses 25 through 29, you can read there about how God controls the seas and causes storms to come upon them and causes the storms to cease. And if you look at verse 51, the storm stops whenever Jesus gets into the boat. But in both of those passages, we see that God is the one who is sovereign over the seas, as we saw in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. He rules over the waves and tells them when and where to go. But most importantly for our text this evening, we read something in Job, of all places. Job chapter 9. And in that chapter, Job is describing the great distance between God and mankind. He's declaring how great God is and how human beings are no match for God. Job talks about the unrivaled power and sovereignty of God Almighty. And then in verse 8 of Job chapter 9, we read this in reference to God. God who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God tramples the waves of the sea. He's described as the only one who alone stretched out the heavens and who alone trampled the waves of the sea. God alone is the one who can thunderously walk on the waters, the one who can do that which it is impossible for mere human beings to do. And here in Mark, that's exactly what we see our Lord Jesus Christ doing. He's God. There's no getting around it. But by his own power, he is trampling on the waves of the sea and doing that which only God can do. Mark's being very straightforward with us here if we know our Bibles. right? Though Mark will never come out and record for us, Jesus Christ is God, Mark does show us many times that Jesus Christ is God, that he has the divine nature in himself, that he is the eternal one and the self-existent, self-sustaining God. But Mark here has a very strange detail in the last line of verse 48. 
he meant to pass by them. That's weird. <laughs> he meant to pass by them. The text tells us in the, in the previous, or prior verses that Jesus saw their distress and then went out to them. But then Mark records he meant to pass by them. It seems to me very out of character that Jesus would know his disciples need his help and then walk directly to them on the, on the sea, but then desire to ignore them or act like that he didn't see them, right? Or act like that they weren't there and they didn't need his help. That's weird. But I don't think that's what he was doing. I don't think that that's what Jesus was doing that night at all. But again, to understand the significance of that phrase, he meant to pass by them, you need to know the Old Testament. By the way, read the Old Testament, right? All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. That's the Old Testament too. But this phrase, he meant to pass by them, is the language of theophany. Right? So there's your $5 word. Use that with your friends. Whenever you talk to them, they'll think you're just a great theologian. Theophany, right? Uh, that comes from two words blended together. Theo, meaning God, and phano, meaning to manifest, to show, to demonstrate, or display. So a theophany is God making himself visible, or rather making himself visibly manifest to human beings, somehow making himself seeable, the invisible God becoming visible. And God does this from time to time in the Old Testament, right? And I bring that up because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX, the word that Mark uses here for pass by them is the same word or the same concept used in the Old Testament for whenever God decides to show himself in a theophany. The most famous example of theophany in the Old Testament is probably found in Exodus chapter 33, right? And I know we're in the few, early few months of the year, so you guys are probably still on your Bible reading plans pretty good. You probably all read Exodus pretty recently. In Exodus 33, God, or God promises to pass by Moses and allow him to see his back. And we read this in verses 19, 21, and 22 of Exodus 33. And God said, he's speaking to Moses, And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. All of this was done by God, passing by Moses in this way, because in verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. Three times in Exodus 33, God mentions passing by Moses or causing his glory to pass by. And then that's exactly what God did in Exodus chapter 34. He passed by Moses and allowed him to get a glimpse in part of the glory of God. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in Mark. R.C. Sproul put it this way, Jesus is self-consciously making himself a theophany. That's amazing. Jesus is self-consciously making himself a theophany. He's displaying his glory before his disciples. He's revealing to them that he is the one who tramples upon the waves, that he is God Almighty. So he meant to pass by them, not to ignore them, but rather, in a theophany, he intended to make his glory manifest to the disciples on the sea. It's amazing. But, but they didn't realize the significance of what was going on. Significance of what was going on. Though his glory was on full display before them in this act, they did not recognize it. In fact, they screamed, right? Grown men, they shriek. 
and they cry out, terrified of Jesus. And that's because in this text, Mark tells us that they thought he was a ghost. Literally, uh, in the original, he, they thought he was a phantasm, right? A spirit of some kind. Uh, maybe what they superstitiously believed to be a water demon because they thought bad times on the waters were created by demons. That's like a superstition of, of first century Israel. They were petrified of what they saw. They didn't recognize Jesus, right? They, they thought they had no human reason to believe that they would be able to see Jesus walking on the water next to them. But again, that's because they didn't recognize him yet for who he is. So they cry out in terror, and then we go on to read, but immediately, Mark's favorite word, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He responds to their terror with reassuring words. And he tells them not to be afraid because it is I. But this phrase, it is I, is very significant. Right? The, the words here in Greek, and some of you already know it, is ego imi. Ego imi. And that Greek phrase, ego imi, is the direct translation of God's proper name in the Greek Old Testament. You remember in Exodus Chapter 3, verse 14, Moses says, Who do I tell them sent me? And God says, Tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. Or in the Septuagint, Ego I me. That's who you tell them sent you. Ego I me sent you. Jesus used the very name of God for himself in this passage. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but from what I've read, Jesus could have said, it's me, by just saying ego. Or he could have said, it is I, by just saying I me. But to place them together in this context, which is not something that Jews did very often, because they recognized this is the ineffable name of God. But in this context of Jesus walking on water, doing that which only God can do, in a setting of theophany, and then he says, I am this is no mistake. This is no accident. This is no coincidence. He just declared in, in indisputable terms that he is God. That he's Yahweh come in human flesh. The I am who tramples upon the waves of the sea, who passed by Moses, is standing before them. Verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. And I think here's a third miracle. Jesus gets into the boat and the storm ceases. The winds die down. There's peace. Just as he ruled over the storm in Mark chapter 4, Jesus rules over nature here again in chapter 6. Again, this is something only God can do. But for all of this that's happened, the disciples still don't get it. They're absolutely shocked that Jesus could walk on the water and that he could still the sea. And why are they shocked? The text says because they didn't understand the significance of the miracle with the loaves. They didn't understand that he does miracles like this because he is God. Right? Like, who else could do these things? And even now with Jesus in the boat, after walking on the water before them, they still don't quite get it. Their hearts are hardened. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't believe that Mark intends us to, to think that they were hostile like the Pharisees. That's not what's going on. But rather, they were slow to believe. They were stupid in the classical sense of the word, right? They were obtuse. They were dull. 
Slow to believe and slow to understand, not fast to understand. Simply put, they did not realize that the one in the boat with whom they had to do was God himself. Though I I think that they believe he is the Messiah at this point, they still don't have a category in their minds for the fact that God, the transcendent, almighty I am, would become a man and dwell with his people. They don't have a category for that yet. Now, they should have seen it. They had everything right there in front of them, but their hearts were still slow to believe and really comprehend in that moment. Mark wants us to know they still don't get it. They still don't really fully get it. But thankfully, the Lord was patient with them, wasn't he? He doesn't scold them in this text, nor does he cast them out and abandon them. He knows that they're not going to fully understand until the resurrection, though they are going to pick up on things here and there as they go. So he, the faithful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, God, is patient with the twelve. And praise God, he's patient with us as well, right? We don't always get it. We're often spiritually stupid and dull and don't recognize the significance of what we see in the Bible. But he's patient and he continues to teach them. He continues to demonstrate his power to them. So just real quick, we see here that he is abundantly kind to those whom he has chosen. He's patient with his people. We praise him for that. But to summarize the facts before us concerning his divinity... We see this. One, Jesus can see his disciples on the sea even when it's dark and he is miles away from them and they are caught in a storm. This is the omniscient eye of the Son of God, a divine trait. Second, we see Jesus literally walking on top of the water, that he tramples on the seas like Job says Yahweh does, that he's king of the flood. Third, we see that he meant to pass by them, that he makes himself a theophany in order to display his glory before them. Fourth, we see that he declares himself to be the I Am, the only God. The proper name of God belongs to Jesus Christ. Fifth, we see the winds cease when he gets into the boat because he controls the natural world. Brothers and sisters, let there be no doubt in your hearts that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. In Christ, God has come to us. Emmanuel. God with us. He is God. The text is absolutely screaming this at the top of its lungs. That Jesus is divine is what Mark is revealing to us once again. He is the only God. As we sing, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, be glory, honor, power, and dominion. He is the only God. He is Yahweh. Now, some of you might be saying to yourselves, because I know I did at first when I was studying this passage, You may be saying to yourself, that's it? Right? That's it? It, it, Surely, this text cannot be that simple. Is that all that it's saying? That's that's basic stuff, man. Right? There's got to be more to it than that. Give me something deep. This is basic level Christianity. Of course, Jesus is God. Give me something that I can take with me. If that's what you're thinking, because I know that's what I thought when I first studied this, let me redirect you to verse 52. Is your heart hard? Sincerely, I'm not just trying to guilt trip you. I don't know your heart. Is it hard? Does the miracle of God coming to us in Jesus Christ not astound you? Or do you think humanity is that special that the transcendent God should come to us? It should amaze us that God would do this. 
Does the fact that your Lord is God Almighty not stir up any affection or devotion or reverence or awe in your heart? Now, we understand more clearly, intellectually, what the disciples missed. They, they missed the whole point of this scene. But maybe we've missed the significance and miracle of the truth that Jesus is God, that he's the God-man. Again, he is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God come in the flesh. And the importance of this fact cannot be overestimated. I read a systematic theologian said, it is the foundation of our every hope that Jesus Christ is truly God. This is, not basic, this is not only basic level Christian doctrine, but it's part of the very ground and foundation of our hope to be saved. Without this truth, there is no hope for sinners. All right, I want you to know that. Something that we take for granted. Well, of course Jesus is God. That is the part of the foundation of our faith. Because if that's not true, we cannot be saved. So what I want to do now is I want to briefly review three basic reasons why we must understand and believe that Jesus Christ is God. I want us to consider three basic reasons why it was necessary for our Redeemer and Savior to be not only man, right, as we saw in the text that he was. He prayed. He walked on the water. Right? Walking is a very human act. Right? He walked whenever he was on the water. He had to be man, but why is it necessary that he be God? The first is this, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, or salvation is of the Lord. This is the central reason. And the other two that I'm going to give you really revolve around this one point. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's from God. It's from Him. Only God can save sinners. Sinners cannot save themselves. One sinner cannot save another sinner. Only God has the right to declare the unrighteous to be righteous. Only God can justify. Only God can take away sins. Only God can forgive sinners, right? He is the offended party after all. Only God can, can forgive them. It's impossible for men to be saved apart from divine intervention. This is an absolute fact. Therefore, if anyone will be saved, God must be the one who does it. He must be the one who does it, and he must do it by himself. And why is that? A few reasons. We're still on the first, first thing. A few reasons. First, who do sinners have to be saved from? God. Christian, you were not saved from an abstract punishment or abstract wrath. It is from the wrath of God himself that sinners must be saved. You have to be saved from God. And you must also be saved by God. He saves you from himself, by himself, for himself. And no mere man, no creature can stay the hand of God. No mere mortal can turn back the wrath of God. Only God can do something like that. Furthermore, God has not and will not delegate the authority to save to anyone else. We read that nowhere in the scripture that God will delegate the authority to forgive or save to someone else. Metaphorically, he might, but not really. The power to save uniquely belongs to him. And I think that that's because his desire is to be glorified above all things. As Romans 11 tells us, all things are to him, through him, and for him. To him be the glory forever. All that he does and all that he decrees is to glorify his own holy name. 
And he declares in the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I will not share my glory with another. God says, I don't share my glory. It belongs to me. It's one thing he won't share. He will not allow any mere human being, a creature, to take or share in the glory that uniquely belongs to him. And if a mere man could save other men, then God would be forced to share his glory with a creature. But the Godhead refuses to do that. So he leaves salvation entirely in his own hands. So salvation belongs to Yahweh. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be God, or there can be no salvation found in him. He must be God, because salvation is of the Lord. Second point, only someone who is infinite God can bear and pay the full penalty for sin for those who would believe. Only God can ransom a sinner's life. Anyone less than God is incapable of doing such a thing because the price is too high. It is God who has been offended. The price is too high for one person to ransom another person. Uh, and hear me, re I'll read Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 through 9. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Psalm 49 tells us that no human being can ransom another person's life to God. No mere man can buy a sinner back from the wrath of God. Not with money, which is the immediate context of the psalm. The wealthy, uh, ungodly person cannot buy their salvation or the salvation of someone else. And you can't buy it with anything else. So in the final sense, we read in Psalm 49 that a human being cannot give anything to God to ransom their own or another person's life from death and certainly not spiritual death. Only God can do such a thing because the price is too high for a mere mortal to pay the price. It's too high. You could put it this way. No man can satisfy God, can they? God is infinite. Man is finite. How does the finite satisfy the infinite? But the infinite God, with infinite resources, so to speak, can pay and redeem the sinner. Man cannot pay what he owes to God, but God can Man cannot satisfy God, but God can satisfy himself. Or to put it maybe a little bit weird, God can render to God what God demands. And only God can do this. Third reason why our Redeemer must be God is because only one who is truly God can be the one mediator between God and man. You guys know this verse well, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Only one who is truly God as well as truly man can be the mediator between us both. Now a mediator is one who brings together two parties who are at odds with each other, who are hostile to one another, who are enemies. And the job of the mediator is to make peace between them. And the two parties are God and mankind. So Jesus must be truly God if he is to lay his hands on both parties. He must be truly man as well if he's going to lay his hand upon man. But he must be truly God in order to, so to speak, lay his hand upon God. If he is to approach God, he must be God. And I say that for this reason. This struck me, and I'm, and I'm willing to take some pushback if someone wants to talk to me about this. I'm still trying to flesh this out in my mind. But he must be God for who but God would dare to approach God. 
We can stop there. I have more. Who but God would dare to approach God? But who but God would dare to approach God for the sake of making peace with those who have offended him? Who, who but God would dare do that? No mere man would dare approach God as a mediator and say, for my sake, forgive them and be at peace with them. What man would say that? For a mere man to request such a thing would be sacrilege and blasphemy of the highest order. For a mere man to look God in the face and say, for my sake, forgive them. Blasphemy. But if the mediator is truly God, then he has not only the ability to approach God, but the right to approach him on behalf of sinners because he is equal to him. Brothers and sisters, the importance of Jesus being God cannot be underestimated. If Jesus is God, then that means we have hoped in the right one. Because if he is God, then we have placed our trust in the only God who can save. If Jesus is God, then that means that our sins are actually taken away because he has the ability to take them away. If Jesus is God, that means that we will live eternally because he mediates on our behalf. But maybe I shouldn't say if. More accurately, in light of our text, we should say, since Jesus indeed is God, we have placed our hope in the right one. We do indeed have the forgiveness of sins, and we will indeed live forever with him. Since he is the one who tramples on the waves of the sea, who sees all that tra uh, transpires in the universe, who controls all of nature, who is himself the great I am, we know that we are saved. Because he is the one who we have come to in faith. We are saved because of who he is as God. Now earlier I told you that this event in Mark's gospel was a theophany, didn't I? And it certainly is, but I think it's a special one. And I say that because it reveals not only the glory of Christ's identity as God, but it also reveals why he came into the world. And this is beautiful. This isn't just a throwaway thing. I want you to see this because this was a blessing to me. There's a twofold revelation here. You guys remember how on the mountain, as he prayed, Jesus saw the disciples, right? He saw them in the boat. He saw that they were weary. He saw that they had been straining at the oars for hours, that their boat was beaten by the waves and tossed by the wind. He, he saw them. He saw them in their distress. And then what did he do? He came to them. He came to them, walking on the waves, displaying his glory to them. And then he got into the boat with them, and the storm ceased. And in that moment, the disciples were rescued and given rest, weren't they? This passage reveals to us that Jesus is God. And he is the God who has come into the world. He is the God who has come to us. To get into the boat with us. To become truly human. So that he might rescue us and give us rest. And we know that our true rescue and rest came through his cross and resurrection. This is a foreshadowing of that. Jesus is the God who comes to us to redeem us and give us rest. It was on the cross where we were rescued from God's wrath. The storm of God's wrath due to us because of our sin. That's where we receive our rest. Where Jesus Christ being truly God on the cross was able to actually save us as only God can. And being truly human, he was able to suffer and die in our place under the wrath of God so that God's justice could be satisfied in him, the human representative. 
We were rescued by his death. And now we're brought into true rest through him. Given rest in him. Peace with God and the promise of redemption and eternal life. Because of who he is and what he has done. In this miracle we see that God has come to sinful humanity in Jesus Christ to rescue and give rest to us if we will trust in him. We stand amazed at this Jesus. The true God come in human flesh. So what do you do with this text? Two things. Don't miss the point like the disciples did. Trust in this one. Trust in this Jesus that Mark's just revealed to you. The one who's truly God. The one who's actually able to save you. Trust him and rest in him. Christian, continue to trust him. For your whole life, trust him. Every day, renew your trust in him, the only God who can save. The one who justifies the ungodly because of who he is. And second, Christian, adore him. Stand in awe of him. Be overwhelmed and astonished. Behold your God. Praise him. Never cease to be amazed at him. He is the only God. He is utterly unique. He is the Holy One. So you ought to let that inflame your heart to a greater love, a truer worship, a greater reverence, and a more sun-like fear. Praise his name and worship him. Adore him as the only God. He is the only God who's come to you. May he be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for sending your Son to us. Son of God, we thank you for taking on human flesh and at the will of your Father coming to save sinners. triune God, who, who but you could have devised such a salvation that God himself, being the only one who could save, would have to come and save sinners by becoming one of us? No man would have dared propose this. No man would have been able to think of this in their wildest dreams. God, I think that's why the disciples didn't understand who thinks that this could have happened, but indeed it did. And by your plan and by the work of God the Son, we are saved. We praise you for him. God, help us to adore you and to trust in you for who you are and what you've done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.